Praise the Lord. It's great to be in God's place of worship and gather with God's people for the occasion of the observance of the Lord's Supper. To me, one of the most meaningful things that we do as Christians as we gather around the Lord's table to remember. You may want to turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, there around chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be going going back and forth between those two uh, passages of Scripture, those two books, as we examine what God has placed on uh, my heart to preach for you this morning as a message to prepare our hearts for the observance of the Lord's Supper. As you're turning and marking your places there in your Bible and and uh, putting your bookmark, whatever, uh, I was thinking about a story that I read some years ago about an old English preacher one Sunday making his way to the church there in the city of London where he ministered. And he's walking along the way to church that day. It's a spring Sunday morning. And he's going through one of the alleyways uh, that he customarily would take to get to his church. And, and as he turned a, a corner, he saw a couple of scraggly looking boys, raggedly dressed, obviously up to some kind of mischief as they were holding an, uh, a, a bird cage, rusty and beat up old bird cage. And they were shaking it violently. And, and they were thoroughly enthused and laughing and, and, and amused at watching these three scrawny, terrorized sparrows that were trapped inside. And so the minister came upon this drama as it was unfolding there. These boys were up to their mischief and he says, What are you boys doing? And so they said, Well, we're just having some fun with these old birds. And he says, Well, what are you going to do with them? One of the old boys, one of the boys said, well, well, we'll probably have some fun with them, play with them, then we'll probably pluck the feathers out and then we'll kill them. And the minister stopped and he thought for a little bit. And he says, well, uh, how about if I give you a dollar for each one of them? The boys are kind of shocked. One of them looked up at the old minister and said, sir, mister, these birds ain't worth a penny, but you got a deal. And so he handed them the money just as he promised and, and just as he was getting ready to turn to walk off with the old rusty bird cage with the three terrorized sparrows inside, one of the boys asked, Hey, mister, what are you going to do with them? And he says, Well, I'm going to set them free. Kind of shocked, the boy thought as he was admiring the money he had in his hand, Well, it's your money. And they went on their way and the minister made his way on towards the church. And true to his word, as he got to his little church there where he would be preaching, he set the birds free in a grove of trees out in the churchyard there. But he proceeded to carry the old rusty beat-up bird cage with him on into the church. And as he made his way to the pulpit, he set the old bird cage empty upon the pulpit. And he began to recount to his congregation just what had transpired with the little boys, the three terrorized sparrows, and what he had just done. And he said to his congregation, he says, this was us. This was the way it was for us 
once upon a time. Because you see, we were all captive to sin. We were helpless and we were hopelessly tormented by a very evil force, Satan. And then a very benevolent and gracious Lord came and paid an exorbitant price to set us free. A powerful object lesson, if you will, that helps us to think about what it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for us in setting us free from the penalty of our sins. As we gather around the Lord's table this morning, I want to paint a picture for you very briefly that I hope will help you and me to consider the significance of what the Lord's table represents to those of us who are God's children, who are the redeemed. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship, a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I trust this message will help you to think through why it is that you would want to choose to receive this wonderful gift of freedom that God gives to us from the wages of our sins. So first of all, I want us to focus upon the the sinner's predicament. And in doing this remembering as we reflect, as we look upon the predicament of every sinner, brothers and sisters, I earnestly, lovingly remind you that this was you and this was me. And when we remember, we appreciate the fact that God's Word clearly describes for us, beginning here in chapter 6 of Romans, I'd like to read with you verses 20 and 21. Because you see, when we think about the sinner's predicament, first of all, you've got to remember that we were alienated and estranged to God. Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, verse 24, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no leaning towards or tendency towards or desire towards things of righteousness. You were absolutely free in your lostness and depravity and sinfulness to do all the, the sordid, evil, wretched things that your flesh wanted to do. Paul says. He says in verse 21, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? So you see, in our lostness and sinfulness, while we were slaves to sin and alienated from God, we were free to do all kinds of, of, of immoral, sinful things that as God's people now, we blush. We blush. In verse 22 he says, But now, having been made or set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Listen, make no mistake about it. As sinners, we were alienated from God. In Colossians in chapter 1 verse 21, the Apostle Paul says there, we were alienated and enemies 
by the works of our mind. We, we were on God's hit list, if you will. Imagine being poised and positioned to endure the eternal wrath of God. Paul said in the earlier chapters in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath was aimed at you and it was aimed at me before Christ. We were the targets of the unimaginable, blazing hot wrath of God towards sin. Folks, make no mistake about it. Understand, the Bible is very clear. God, holy God, righteous God, hates sin. And that's what we were. We were sin. And we had that target on us. We were not only alienated and separated from God, but just as we read here in the Scriptures, we were enslaved by sin and existing under the penalty of death. Hopelessly. Helplessly. Just like those three little sparrows in the cage couldn't do a thing to change their circumstances or to save themselves. That was us. In the bondage of sin. Under the control of Satan and the world. Turn with me to Ephesians in chapter 2 and watch how Paul portrays our terrible predicament and how we can understand what it is that Jesus did for us when we first consider how absolutely lost and helpless we were. As you go back to Ephesians in chapter 2, look with me there. The Apostle Paul, in verse 1, he says, And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Just as the others. Paul says that. He's writing to Christian believers. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's saying that was you. And you notice in those three verses, Paul identifies our three spiritual enemies. The world, this anti-God philosophical system that is absolutely bent against God and righteousness and anything that represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if you want to see hair stand up on the back of secular people, you mention the name of Jesus Christ. Why do you think there's such a concerted effort by forces of evil to, to close down prayers in, in, in public places that mention the name of Jesus Christ. You can pray uh, in the name of a general uh, God out there that, that represents all kinds of religions, but you mention the name of Jesus and immediately you experience the hatred of that world system that is bent against God. He identifies the world. There in verse 2. He talks about our enemy, the devil. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. 
And then he also identifies that internal spiritual enemy. And that's our own flesh nature. We have all three of these that were working against us and enslaving us in sin. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not one. And he goes on in that same chapter in Romans 3 and verse 23 to say, and the, you know, that, that we have all sinned. All! Get the magnitude of this. There's never been a person born on the face of the earth save the Son of God, born without sin. Every person ever born in every nation, every ethnic group, is born under the curse of sin. There's none righteous, Paul says, not one. Everybody is born enslaved to sin and therefore under the penalty of sin. And so being enslaved by sin, we are manipulated by the powers of our own flesh. Paul gives us a glimpse of this even for himself. The Apostle Paul, that great apostle of the, of the gospel, to the Gentiles, Paul says, listen to what Paul says in Romans in chapter 7. And see if this doesn't fit you in some degree. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Now just sense the struggle. This is Paul as a, as a believer, as a leader in the church. And yet the flesh nature, folks, still lives with us. Paul says in verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. For what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who, who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Wow, Brother Eddie, talking about reading through the responsive reading and getting confused. I get confused going through here. You probably did too. The Paul is saying, the things that I want to do and I know I need to do, I find myself not doing those, but yet the very things I don't want to do. My flesh causes me to do those things. Oh, how frustrating is this? In verse 24 is the culmination. Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you see, as sinners, lost, separated, alienated from God, enslaved by sin, under the penalty of death, we were victims of... We were slaves to. We took our, our directions from. We had to follow the course of the world, Satan, and the flesh. And all the people that are out there now who do, do not share in a relationship with Jesus Christ are in that predicament. We shouldn't shake our heads and, and wonder, why, why, do, 
Why do lost people do these terrible things that they do? They do what they do because that's their nature. They're only following instructions. They're wired that way. They're lost sinners. They're under the penalty of sin. They're, they're enslaved to sin. They're being taunted by the devil and tormented by the flesh. And they're led by the world. And so they're just doing what they would normally do. But also understand that being separated from God meant spiritual death. We were dead. Spiritually dead. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the penalty of sin is death. Not talking about that physical Ceasing of the heart to beat and the brain waves cease and, and, and you lose that physical life. No, he's talking about that separation from God. The penalty of sin. And who sins? I told you. Paul says all have sinned. So all are under the penalty of sin. In other words, they are living, existing, if you will, under the penalty of sin, which is they are dead in their, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.1, dead in their trespasses and sin. Dr. Charles Stanley oftentimes uses the expression, he says, for those who are lost and separated from God and, and, and in their sinfulness, he said they are the equivalent of walking dead men and women. People you see that are following after the course of the world, chasing after the desires of the flesh, and being led and, and, as if a puppeteer, Satan is like using them as a puppet. Those people that are dominated by sin, lost and depraved, listen, they are not alive spiritually. They can't even begin to comprehend the things that you and I enjoy in our relationship with God. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. There you have it. Every person is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And the curse came through Adam and Eve upon all of humanity. And every person ever born on the face of the earth is born spiritually dead. But you know, the Bible describes even yet a second death. It's one thing to be separated from God in a relationship from God. To exist here on earth and to go through the motions of existing and not be connected with God, not have a relationship with God. But do you know there's coming a day when even those who are separated from God, those who are spiritually dead, if you will, there's coming a day when they will experience yet another and more horrible, horrific, unimaginable, agonizing death. John describes that in, in the Revelation in chapter 20. When he describes what we know as the great white throne of judgment at the end of time. Christ has returned and He has conquered sin and He is establishing His rule upon the earth and all presence of sin is being eradicated and He sits on a great white throne to judge all of humanity down through the ages, everybody. 
And John talks about there on that great white throne of judgment, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 20 of the Revelation. He says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. In verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death. So even those who have walked on this earth and never professed faith in Jesus Christ, who entered into eternity, awaiting the great white throne of judgment, spiritually dead, will be brought back physically, resurrected in a body that they will stand before the white throne of judgment of Christ, and there they will be condemned into the lake of fire. We know it as hell, a place of eternal torment and anguish and darkness and agony that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. No hope. It's called the second death. We can't appreciate where we are and who we are as God's people unless we go back and remember what a terrible predicament we were once in. And there's no exclusion. I don't care how benevolent you have been. I don't care how kind a person has been. How charitable a person has been. I don't care how good everybody says that that person is. Every person finds themselves in that predicament. I was. And you were. Now we turn the corner. As we consider the sinner's predicament, now we see that the Word of God describes to us the Savior's provision. This is what the table represents. This is what these elements are designed to cause you and me as followers of Jesus Christ to remember Jesus said as He was, he was partaking of that Lord's Supper, initiating this, this spiritual object lesson that, that He ordained that the church would do often over and over and over because He says as often as you do this, remember! Remember! And I challenge you today to remember your sinful predicament, but then also quickly remember our Savior's provision. For you see, the very elements of the Lord's table represent the fact that Jesus Christ, the precious Son of God, gave His perfect sinless life to purchase our spiritual liberty. The Bible tells us in Romans, as Paul talks there in Romans in chapter 6 and verse 18, listen to how he describes it. He says, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Yes, you were slaves of sin. Yes, you were a slave of the devil and the world and the flesh. But now, Paul says, you have been made to be free, and now you're a slave of God, of righteousness. And down in verse 22, chapter 6, he goes on to say, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end to everlasting life. 
Whereas before, when you were slaves of sin and the flesh and the devil and the world, the best that you could produce is fruit, is sin and immorality and wretchedness and evil and pain. And he says, now that you're a sin of righteousness, you belong to God, you follow His orders and you walk according to His will, he says, you're bearing forth good fruit, fruit of righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to how Paul describes it as you read along with me. Chapter 2, verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy... Could I get an amen there? God, who is rich in mercy... His mercies, Lamentations 3.22 tells us, they never end because of His love and kindness. His mercies never end. Morning by morning, they are brand new to you and me. So Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, not just because of His love, but because of His great love, His unmeasurable love, His unconditional love, His unrivaled love, His redeeming love. Paul says, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were what? Dead in trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift. I emphasize, it is a gift. You can't earn salvation. You don't work for it. You never deserve it. There's nothing you can do to, to, to earn forgiveness of your sins and a home in heaven and to be able to have eternal life. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. In verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about this spiritual liberty. Eternally, we're set free from the penalty of sin. The minute that you prayed to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, and you professed earnestly your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and you committed... Don't miss this part, folks. Because salvation is a whole lot more than having some emotional experience and writing your name on a card and getting your name on a church roll. No, no. When Jesus called His initial disciples, He didn't say, Here, Peter, sign your name. You believe in Me? Sign your name. Okay, go on and live your life like you want to. No. He says, You come and follow Me. And when you and I made that commitment to follow Christ by faith, then, let me tell you something, not only was the penalty of our sins paid in full, we were set free. We were set free. We were snatched out of the hands of Satan. We were claimed into the kingdom of God from the dark do domain of darkness into the domain of light. Instead of being slaves of the devil, we became instantly adopted children of God. Oh, listen, folks, I don't think the average Christian even begins to comprehend the wonder of what it is that God did for us. Look back here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 6, he says, And He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is not future tense. 
He's not talking about something that happens to you, even though we know that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We know that in the end, after uh, the Lord has, has conquered sin and, and evil and He established His reign, we'll be with Him. We know that. But do you realize, based on what Paul is saying here in chapter 2, verse 6, that the moment you chose to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you were instantaneously ascended. Now, I know this is kind of a spiritual mind-bending concept, but we accept the fact that we, as the Scripture says, we are in Christ when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then guess what? We died with Him. When He died on the cross, He was dying for Charlie Martin. He didn't have to die for Himself because He had no sin. In Christ, I died to that old sinful nature. Just as He died, I was in Him. And died to that old sinful nature. But we also, the Scripture says, in Christ we are resurrected with Him. Just as He came out of the grave after the third day, having been buried in that borrowed tomb, He stepped forth in the power and the glory and the everlasting life of God. And just as He lives for eternity, so do we. We were resurrected in His resurrection. But listen, Paul says, we have been spiritually because we are in Christ, raised up together with Him, seated in the heavenly places. You are spiritually in Christ. Where is Christ, the Son of God, right now? He's there at the right hand of God the Father. And spiritually, we are there with Him. Paul says, you have already been elevated to and, and you have been made recipients of the, all the blessings of heaven. So why do we continue to live here on earth as if we're just the average person walking around? You're children of God. Because you've been set free and the penalty of our sins have been paid. And Paul says in Colossians in chapter 1 verse 22, when he talked about we were alienated and, and enemies of God by the works of our minds, he says, but in Him we have been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled and set free. And that's what the elements of the table represent to us. Our spiritual liberty, but the very elements of the Lord's Supper represent the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when He gave His perfect sinless life for you and me, He purchased not only our spiritual liberty, but He purchased for us spiritual life. In Romans in chapter 5, Paul says in verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath, from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. As we were reconciled, we were given life. Those who were dead in our sins and trespasses have been made to live again. We have eternal life. The gift of God. And we know that we have this eternal life. I know a lot of people say, well, yeah, I know I'm going to live for eternity. I have eternal life when I get to heaven. And yes, we do. 
Jesus tells us that heaven is a real place. In John 14, 13, uh, 3, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And, and when I come back, I will receive you that you may be where I am. And there you will live for eternity. So we know that we have eternal life as it pertains to heaven. But you know something? We have eternal life right now. We have eternal life right now. You are an eternal creature created in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus said in John's Gospel chapter 10, He says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. How do we get our eyes off of the distractions of this world? How do we ward off the sentiments of hopelessness and helplessness of this world? How do we keep ourselves from being bogged down by the troubles of such an evil and wretched world? How is it? By realizing that this world is not our home. We have a home that has been prepared by the very hands of the Lord Himself where we will be in His presence and He's already bestowed upon us that eternal life right now and we're gifted to live that life. It's a gift from God. So I ask you this morning, as you prepare to observe the Lord's Supper, faithfully as Christians should, when's the last time you stopped and thought through the Scriptures what your predicament was? I know some of you, like myself, you grew up very humble means. And you know, you probably look around at how God has blessed you. And you see how much better things are right now. You have conveniences and comfort and pleasures that you couldn't have probably imagined when you were a little kid. Particularly if you grew up on a farm and you're pretty poor, you know, and things are pretty tough. And you, and you look, do you look around you and say, oh man, I can't really appreciate what I have unless I remember how it used to be. I submit that to God's children today. Sometimes we lose, we lose track of what it is that God has done for us. We lose perspective of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus because we've forgotten our past. I'm not saying you need to go back and dwell in your past. I'm saying it's good from time to time and especially here at the Lord's table to just take a moment and remember all that we describe from the Scriptures of the predicament of sinners, that was us. And now, through the grace of God, by the faith that He gave you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and by His shed blood that paid the price for the redemption of your sins, you have a totally different perspective and a new hope and a new future. And we owe it all to Him. I'd like to ask the production team if they could put up the words to the song we sang. Brother Nathan so wonderfully led us through singing. You know, I thought about the words of the song. And you know, when Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not by works, it is a gift of God, not by works. 
The benefits that you and I enjoy now being a Christian. The benefits of peace and joy and, and security and sense of belonging to God and, 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 and the stability, the hope, all the wonderful blessings that we have, not just in this life, but those that await us in heaven. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything to earn that. I was looking at the history of this song, and it appears that back in the spring of 1865, during a church service one Sunday morning, Alvina Hall was sitting in her usual place in the choir of the Baltimore Monument Street Baptist uh, or Methodist Church. And she was so moved by the concept of what Jesus had done for her. It just dawned on her what transpired in her becoming a child of God. Her mind began to fill up during the service of, of all these words that were trying to take shape in her mind to describe the beauty of the salvation experience. She could hardly wait till the end of the service and she quickly grabbed the old hymn and she began to just write fiercely on the fly page of that old hymnal, a poem. But she would later humbly take to her pastor and just share with him. And her pastor recognized what God was doing through her thoughts. And he shared this poem with John T. Grape, a successful coal merchant in Baltimore and a skilled amateur musician. And he put that poem into the form of the hymn that we have today. And I think this, the, the message of this song should shape how we approach the Lord's table today. And I'd like for us to just sing one stanza of it. We're not going to go through the whole thing. Pardon me for my weak voice, but sing with me. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Think about it. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. One more time. Jesus paid it all. Think about this. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.